working here no more Yeah, my woman done left and she took all the reasons I was working for And you better not try to stand in my way when I'm a-walking out the door You can take this job and shove it I'm not working here no more Well, I've been working on it's not news to anyone here, right, that we're in a deep historical trough of the working class movement in this country, measured almost any way you want to measure it. Union membership, strike activity, long-term decline in real wages, on and on like that. But as my friend and, and, and colleague Jonah Furman says, the decline is over. It's dead. This week's show explores the question of how Striketober and the Great Resignation, two seemingly contradictory actions by American workers, happen simultaneously. Union organizing and strikes surge this fall at the same time that millions of workers up and quit their jobs. Labor historian Gabriel Winnen put the current labor upheaval in historical context at a December 10th labor history discussion hosted by the East Side Freedom Library in St. Paul, Minnesota. Gabe is the author of The Next Shift, The Fall of Manufacturing and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. And his latest essay, Strike Wave, was published in the British journal New Left Review in late November. We've got a link in the show notes. Gabe's historical perspective seems especially useful as we look ahead to a new year and a rejuvenated labor movement. And we've included an inspiring report on local organizing in St. Paul bookstores. These are the sparks that are firing the tinder of worker discontent across the country. On this week's Labor History in Two... The year was 1945. That was the day that workers ended their 99-day strike against the Ford Motor Company in Windsor, Ontario. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on this week's Labor History Today. Here's Eastside Freedom Library co-executive director Peter Ratcliffe to start off today's show. I'm not working here no more Yeah, my woman done left and she took all the reasons I was working for And you better not try to stand in my way when I'm a-walking out the door You can take this job and shove it I'm not working here no more Welcome everyone to the monthly labor history discussion in the virtual world of the Eastside Freedom Library. It's great to see you all. And I know that probably all of us Minnesotans are thinking, thank God for Zoom, that we don't have to deal with the roads and trying to get somewhere this evening. Often we have keyed these conversations off of films, sometimes off of readings, when we've been able to do a reading. It's been great to have the person who wrote the reading join us. Tonight, we're fortunate that Gabe Winant is with us. Gabe teaches history at the University of Chicago and is the author of a widely read and being discussed recent book called The Next Shift, which talks about the decline of manufacturing and the rise of healthcare and services and the consequences that has for the labor movement, which I think is really a great 
background for him to tackle the subject of what the heck is going on today between what some have called striketober and strikes giving and then the great resignation and as a historian i tend to believe that having a historical perspective is a great help in trying to figure something like this out but i'm relieved that i don't have to explain it we have gabe here to explain it i'm going to hit mute and turn the turn things over to gabe okay well, thank you, Peter. It's really, uh, it's a pleasure to be here for numerous reasons. I mean, one, I've known of and admired Peter from afar as an aspiring young labor historian reading his work. And we met briefly at a conference maybe six, seven years ago, but I've known about the Sci Freedom Library for a while and been excited to have contact with it in some way. And beyond that, of course, anytime, I think folks here are all in some way connected to questions of the labor movement or labor struggle, it sounds like you don't want to just write for intellectual self-indulgence. You want to because, or I wanted to write this piece as I generally do with my work as a way of trying to collectively talk over and figure out the problems that we face and the struggles that we have for justice and freedom in our historical moment. So like Peter said, I'll just summarize briefly the argument. I'll start by saying that both in my approach intellectually and also out of my own personal history as someone who has been a union organizer, uh, as well as a historian, strike a balance between that is really the kind of fundamental optimism, improving and transforming our societies, that is the belief in that power, and realism about the huge impediments that workers face in our society and in all societies at all times when they try to do that. And we have to try to be specific, actually, about what sources of power in any given moment, in any given kind of context, working class people have or might have, and what obstacles exist that we have to think about and try to understand. And I think it's very tempting on the left often to think about these categories in generic terms. The working class is a big blob out there and we sympathize with it and it struggles and has power if only it organizes and then the capitalist class and then maybe the state are big other opposed blobs that we oppose and think are bad. And that's true at a very kind of stylized abstract level. If you've ever tried to organize a group of workers or any kind of struggle, you quickly encounter all of the complicated specificities of every single person, every single organization, every single workplace, every single struggle. I wanted to kind of try to figure that balance out some in this current moment. And so I'll just start by saying that it's not news to anyone here, right? That we are at a deep, in the grand scheme, we're in a deep historical trough of the working class movement in this country, measured almost any way you want to measure it. Union membership, strike activity, long-term decline in real wages, on and on. And that has been underway in some form, arguably since the early 70s, certainly since the early 80s. And I think it's no longer even really right to say that the labor movement, the formal labor movement is declining. But as my friend and, and, and colleague Jonah Furman says, the decline is over. It's dead in many ways, and as we once knew it. And at the same time, like, there's a kind of ongoing question that folks who care about this and have been paying attention to it for a long time have asked, which is, okay, we know that the labor movement has this kind of cyclical history, right? That it doesn't just grow and shrink steadily, but rather grows in extraordinary moments of rapid upheaval and dynamism in the 1880s, 1910s, 1930s, 1960s, and 70s, and 
in between those moments, there's all, there are always deep troughs of defeat and failure and setback. And so how should we orient ourselves? How can we tell in any given moment where we are, right? Or what kind, what is the nature of the kind of trough that we're in? Can we expect it to go on? What will we have to do to get out of it? And that's been a question that folks in the movement on the left have been asking now since the 80s. And they'll keep waiting for the moment to come, the corner to turn. The one kind of phenomenon that's been going on the last couple of months, and in some ways the last few years in certain respects, is a something of what looks like an uptick maybe in this in strike activity. And this really started in 2018, 2019, particularly with the teacher strike wave that for ed movement of those years. A little bit other industries also. There's a GM strike in 2019. There are always some number of hospital strikes going on. And then, and so in, in 2018, 2019, this strike activity, although not particularly high in the grand scheme of things, still climbed higher than it had been since the mid-1980s. That seemed like a good sign. Then it fell off quite steeply during the pandemic. The kind of emergency mobilization seemed to make it impossible to contest what were the very obvious kind of brutalities and inequalities and exploitative dimensions of essential work, um, the kind of killing zone that the American workplace became. And throughout the last year, I think I heard people asking, and I asked myself, might the end of the pandemic whatever that looks like, looks something like the end of previous moments of national mobilization, like the end of World War II or World War I, when there were big strike waves driven by suppressed suppressed workers' demand for improved wages and working conditions finally being let out by the end of the emergency. Then we had this thing, so it first got called Striketober, and now it's gotten extended in time. And it's really remarkable and novel in some ways and limited in others. What's remarkable and novel about it is that it seems to reflect, so the kind of uptick in strike activity in the last few months, and in general militancy, even where it hasn't resolved, resulted in strikes, like in the case of IATSE, for example, the Hollywood Technical Workers Union, who voted at 99% to go on strike with 90% turnout, um, and then settled the contract narrowly shortly thereafter without striking. Similar cases have happened in other industries where there's observable militancy, even if it doesn't result in a strike. For one thing, we are in what is really the kind of first tight labor market in a long time in this country. That means that as we hear all the time from angry restaurant managers and so on, labor is not available at the wage that capital would like to pay for it. And for a generation, really, and especially after the 2008 financial crisis, the labor market was bottomed out. Workers were extremely replaceable. And that made workplace militancy very difficult, right? Because if workers are replaceable, everyone knows individually how replaceable they are, and they're much less likely to take the risk that organizing always entails. But with low unemployment, which we started to see in 2018-19, and then the pandemic jacked it up, but now it's low again, capital has a harder time finding labor at the wage that it wants to pay. Workers have more choice that they can make about where they want to work and when they want to work and so on. And so that's driven the great resignation. What economists call the quit rate is the highest it's been I think since they started measuring it in the about a generation ago, that just the rate at which people are quitting their jobs, the workforce participation rate, which is the uh, per, uh, percentage of the working age population which is seeking or seeking work or employed, is also not rising, which you would expect it to do if unemployment were low and wages were rising. So people are holding themselves back from jobs, holding themselves back even from seeking work to some degree, and also have been driven out of the labor market, maybe to some degree. You have the emergency expansions of the social safety net last year and this year by Trump and then Biden, which have also made non-employment more survivable than it has been historically. 
And all of these things are combining to produce this effect of workers exercising individually, exercising a little bit more choice than has happened recently about who they're going to work for, when they're going to work, what kind of wages they're going to take, and so on. That, in turn, has made employers less willing to, or that has caused employers to try to overwork the workers that they have rather than offer higher wages to recruit more. And so many of the strikes that have happened have issues around mandatory overtime and that kind of thing, or understaffing, or both, really central in the disputes that have occurred. It's been especially true in food service and healthcare, but in many industries. The IATSE strike and the infamous kind of shooting, the Alec Baldwin shoot, right? That, that's an overwork issue at the core of that dispute. The overwork issue, again, is driven by the fact that with more workers willing to willing and able to exercise some amount of preference about and resistance to just accepting whatever shitty terms the boss is going to offer them, management then tries to, instead of raise wages to attract those people, tries to offload that work, dump that work onto the people who they already employ, worsening hours and working conditions. So that, I think, is the basic cause of striketober or whatever you want to call it. The combination of the kind of emergency situation of the pandemic, the direct experience millions of workers had of seeing how disposable they are to their employers who would let them die um, of, of the virus. In the meatpacking industry, infamously had a betting pool on how many workers would die or get sick. That in combination with the recovery of the labor market itself undergirded by the expansion of the social safety net has brought about this kind of labor market shortage which creates both upward pressure on wages and simultaneously worsens conditions in some number of industries as they won't increase wages and hire more. But I think while that's very exciting, we also have to acknowledge with some honesty the limits of what we've seen so far. The, the total number of workers who have been on strike this in striketober is, I believe, under 100,000. There were moments in American history, previous strike waves, like in 1945, 1946, or in 1919, when 5 10% of the entire population of the country, not just the workforce, but the population participated. So millions of people, multiple general strikes in years like that. And we're not anywhere near that. And we're not even really numerically near 2018, 2019 with its giant teacher strikes. And so I think we also have to think about, okay, what are the limits here? What is the reason that this kind of structurally favorable situation of a tight labor market is generating these kind of pockets of militancy along this narrow front, but it doesn't seem able to expand and mobilize more of the working class at once. And there, I think we have to, one, start off by acknowledging that the labor movement is too small, obviously, is much, much too small. And so what would once have taken the form of, of strike activity, a collective action, today, for millions of people, takes the form of turning down job offers or, you know, quitting shitty job, pre-existing broad-based labor movement there to channel that discontent, really. I mean, just not enough people are anywhere near a union. But two, that itself, I think, is rooted in a deep problem that has to do with the kind of structural sources of the disorganization of the US working class, which go back in some way centuries, obviously have to do with the legacy of slavery and indigenous dispossession, have to do with the legacy of patriarchy in profound ways. Those deep struck tectonic forces get institutionalized in new ways in every generation. And here, I think we really have to broaden our narrative of what the assault on labor since the 1980s has looked like, because we have a story about it and that story's not wrong, right? Reagan fired the air traffic controllers, 
but lots of plants closed, millions of blue collars got laid off, blue collar workers got laid off, surviving unions went into concessionary bargaining mode, accepted two-tier contracts, which are what many of the strikes recently have been about, and so on. Employers figured out how to bend labor law their way, and that's all true. But underneath that is, I think, an even deeper attack on the working class that goes along with it, which hasn't just occurred in the context of industrial relations and collective bargaining, but really needs to be seen as political as having a political element. The state has attacked the working class, and that look that takes a form, from most importantly, of mass incarceration and the gutting of the social safety net, and in particular, welfare reform. Those two forces together. And everything that they conjure, policing, the war on drugs, welfare reform, but also diminishment of food stamps and work requirements for Medicaid, and we go on and on this. Those forces together have meant that losing your job becomes a much scarier proposition for millions and millions of people lower in the sort of strata of the working class, right? Then losing your job starts to mean your kid might go to jail, starts to mean that you might have to, if you're going to go on TANF, uh, accept an abusive you know, ex-boyfriend back into your life because you had kids together. And so a larger punitive political environment has built really deep divisions into of the working class and the way that, that class then faces capital, right? It, it faces capital really badly divided already along these lines. And that makes it much harder to have moments of militancy spill out and spread rapidly in the way that they once did historically. Then the other final piece I'll say, and then I'll stop talking, it has to do with the structure of employment itself. So there's also been a tremendous shift in, and this is what my book is about, in what kinds of industries capital employs labor to work in. And in particular, there's a long-term, very large-scale shift away from industries where, that had what we would call product, like steady productivity increases, and that, like, that means manufacturing, most of all, where it was possible for capital to make concessions to labor in an ongoing way, because capital was also simultaneously replacing labor with more capital. That's to say, bring in machines to replace workers. That makes the cost of production lower. And out of the savings of that, you can pay the remaining workers more. That's like basically what the bargain between industrial unions and industrial employers was in the 50s, 60s, into the 70s. It was based on that kind of rising productivity. Now, in food service, healthcare, education, hospitality, childcare, elder care, and many, much of the care economy, you can't really have that effect, right? It doesn't work the same way. You can't replace people with machines in the same way. You can't, it doesn't seem like you can increase productivity except by just degrading the quality of the service. And what that means is that there's not that same kind of growing pie that capital can give labor a larger slice of. This has caused employers to try to basically do everything that they can to hold down wages. And we can talk more about what that looks like, but things like the gig economy and so on, I think need to be understood in these terms. And it also means that for workers to defeat their employers and win real material gains, they have to engage in struggles, not just directly with an employer, but more broadly over the social wage, right? Over the kind of political shape of their employment relationship in ways that concern people beyond themselves. And here, the classic example is here where I am in Chicago, the Chicago Teachers Union, which has, I think, really led the way in figuring out how their own struggles over their own working conditions can and need to be linked 
to questions about what kinds of services kids get in schools. And that, I think, is the best way to think of not just the, these divisions that structure the working class, but also how working class organizations have tried to take on those divisions. Let me get Aaron and Aaron's story about the bookstore workers into the conversation, too, and then see if Gabe wants to respond to a bunch of these contributions. Go ahead, Aaron. I work for Half Price Book. We have six stores in the Twin Cities, but there's over 130, uh, around 130 stores nationwide. They are the second biggest bookstore chain in the country right now, I think. And they are also the biggest used bookstore chain in the country. We started having conversations about unionizing in May, and it started with just literally three employees getting together, talking about it, working with a union organizer, and then doing the things that you've got to do when you organize, as I've discovered now, having done it, have these one-on-one -on -one conversations with all your coworkers. That spread, it spread to two stores, it spread to three stores, it spread to four stores. We still have two stores in the Twin Cities that are holding out, but right now, three of our stores have voted one of our stores is about to vote and everything is looking on course for all four of those stores to be officially unionized this month so we this has been like for all of us working at half price books this is this has been pretty momentous like this the company has been around for 50 years and it's never the entire 50 years has never had one store unionized so that was that was a very intense moment to actually make that announcement, to walk into our manager and make that announcement and say that we're unionizing for all the reasons that anyone else is unionizing. Can't afford to live. People can't afford to live um, on the wages that they give us. That's probably number one thing. Workplace issues, workplace conditions. We are overworked. And then we also just basically want to have a a say in what goes on at the stores. And we have, we've never had that at any of our stores. I just want to say, I don't mean to disparage anything that Gabe is saying, but I'm very excited about this. And since I've, since I've been doing it, it's actually, it's been like, it's been an education, but it's been really empowering for me personally. And I, the other thing <clears throat> that I want to say is that I've had through doing this, I just, I love the communication and the connection that I'm having with the people that I work with and the people at other stores and all of the people across the country who have been like, because we've had all these people contacting us and just encouraging us and giving us their support. And I, the way Gabe was saying is this might be a wave, but for me, I just don't, I don't see American workers going back to the status quo. I just don't feel like us going back. I just, I feel like, I just feel like workers are just sick of it. They're just sick of it. They're just, they're, they're, they're there has to be system, systemic, uh, systematic change. That has to happen. I just don't feel like we're going back. So we're about out of time. Gabe, you can have the last word or words. I'll just say thanks for having me. It's really, obviously, I, I said I didn't want to seem like too much of a downer, but obviously there's lots of things I feel very concerned and scared about. And it's a source of huge, it's very meaningful. It's a source of like inspiration to hear all the stories and struggles, even just in very brief form that you all talked about tonight. And it's exactly the kind of 
cohesiveness and collectivity that we need a million times more of. Take this job and shove it. I ain't working no more. Couple of niggas called the pieces that I'm looking for. They got tired of staying away just walking out the door. Take this job and shove it. I ain't working no more. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1945. That was the day that workers ended their 99-day strike against the Ford Motor Company in Windsor, Ontario. Just across the river from Detroit, workers from the UAW Local 200 fought and won a union shop and dues checkoff. They had to fight hard to get it. The plant was organized during World War II. Workers put off many demands to help with the war effort. After the war, Ford refused to agree to a new contract and laid off 1,500 workers. The workers voiced their rage and issued new demands. They wanted vacation and layoff pay, better grievance procedures, and medical benefits. They also wanted compensation for work on Sundays and holidays. When Ford refused to budge, 14,000 workers took to the picket line and went on strike. By October, they also shut down the powerhouse that brought light, heat, and power to the plant. Management complained machinery would be damaged if the power remained off. The Ontario Provincial Police and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police were called in to reopen the plant. When they arrived, they found a barricade of some 2,000 cars and trucks reinforcing the picket lines. Then, 8,000 workers from Amalgamated Local 195, which included Chrysler workers, walked out in sympathy. They joined the picket lines and stayed out for a month. The Women's Auxiliary organized to feed the strikers. They had financial support from unions, churches, and small businesses from across the country. Returning soldiers marched in solidarity rallies along with much of the community. Because of this strong showing of support, negotiations were jump-started and soon workers were ratifying a new contract. This victory allowed what is now Unifor 584 to win unprecedented gains for its members for more than three decades. That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and even better, if you like what you hear, and we hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, leave a review. That really helps other folks to find the show. Special thanks this week to the East Side Freedom Library for hosting the December 10th Gabe Winnett discussion and co-executive director Peter Ratcliffe for providing the audio file. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Today's music includes three versions of the Johnny Paycheck classic Take This Job and Shove It by the Moonshine Bandits, the Dead Kennedys, and Cannabis with Biz Markey. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and 
the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history and see you next time. No need to discuss it. Just take this job and shove it right between